Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn off all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater. And this midnight I will tell you the tale of the Borden Tragedy, Part One. There's a house in Fall River that will cause you to shiver even though there's no chill in the air. And on warm August nights when you turn out the lights, you can see her standing on the stairs. She laughs as she glares at the guest room upstairs and she quickly moves down to the parlor. And if you're very quiet, a muffled sob fills the night and she whispers, You disappointed me, father. Without saying any more, she glides out the door to the barn and then up to the loft. She has sinkers to find. Or is it a piece of iron this time? Don't get confused. Lisbeth of Maplecroft. When next she appears, different clothes she wears. Was it a bloody dress she was burning? But her arms are stained red with blood that she shed as horror ends and a hatchet she's carrying. Michael Wilkerson Elizabeth of Maplecroft. That poem was written for the 1994 television documentary Lizzie Borden Took an Axe, which I first watched on the Discovery Channel when I was nine years old. I have been fascinated and haunted by this unsolved mystery ever since. Like the Whitechapel murders that left six women dead in London only four years earlier, the truth about what really happened inside the Borden house on the bright and sunny day of August 4th, 1892, will probably never be known. But this case, and the life of its prime suspect Lizzie Borden herself, continue to intrigue us as much today as they did 128 years ago in Fall River, Massachusetts. The Borden tragedy has become an integral part of America's dark mythology, so much so that children jumping rope on playgrounds still learn and sing a macabre rhyme written about it. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother forty wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty-one. 
the truth about what happened begins to twist into legend almost immediately. First, and most important of all, we do not know for sure who murdered Abigail and Andrew Borden. Lizzie Borden was arrested and put on trial for the crimes, but the jury, all male, acquitted her, and the murders are still considered unsolved. Secondly, the murder weapon was not an axe. It was suspected to be a hatchet, which is much smaller. Thirdly, Abigail Borden was not Lizzie's mother. She was her stepmother, and Abigail received 18 whacks, while her father, Andrew, received 11. Instead of 81 wounds, there were actually 29 in total. So, the true facts of this mysterious case are a bit different from what most people know, or assume they know. To go in search of the truth about the murders of Abigail and Andrew Borden, it is necessary to understand the human beings involved and the events that led up to it. As the Whitechapel murders raised awareness of the immense poverty of those who lived in the East End of London, the Borden tragedy acted as a Pandora's box on the American psyche exposing in an extremely public way that behind the closed doors of a respectable family's house, acts of human horror could be committed in secret. Something was deeply wrong within the Borden house, within the Borden family, a thread of darkness that erupted in bloodshed. Could a child murder their own parent? Could a woman commit such a brutality? Could she get away with it? Could such a thing happen in your house? Could it happen within your own family? Could it happen to you? Like Jack the Ripper, just hearing the name Lizzie Borden conjures up many vivid and gruesome images in our minds, many of which are myths and not the truth. As author and Fall River native Victoria Lincoln puts it in her definitive book, A Private Disgrace, Lizzie Borden by Daylight, Lizzie Borden is an American legend, the lady with the axe, the Greeks had Clytemnestra, we have Lizzie. But I do intensely want you to see her not as a legend, a case, but as a real person. Fall River is a small, quiet town in Bristol County, Massachusetts. It is located about 53 miles south of the city of Boston. When the Plymouth Colony was established in 1620, the area was the home of the Wampanoag native tribe. Running through the area is the Quickishan River, Quickishan being a word in the Wampanoag language meaning falling river which is how the town received its name. 
The area was settled by European immigrants in 1670, and the town of Fall River was officially incorporated in 1803. Only a year later, in 1804, the town changed its name to Troy. It was known as Troy for 30 years, but they decided to change the name of the town back to Fall River for good in 1834. Fall River's official town motto is, We'll Try. Adopted after the immense devastation the community suffered in what became known as the Great Fire of 1843. But its citizens were determined to rebuild and to survive. And they did that, and much more. They and their town prospered immensely in the decades that followed the Great Fire. The Industrial Revolution of the Victorian Age is what brought Fall River its prominence. By 1890, the town had a population of 80,000 people and manufactured more cotton textiles than any other city in the world. The two most powerful families in Fall River society were the Durfees and the Bordens, both of whom had numerous branches living throughout the town. Fall River was also a home to many Irish immigrants in the 19th century, and, like the London of 1888, a rigid class system was in place, especially among those who had the most money. Judge Robert Sullivan said, In Fall River, the Durfees spoke only to the Bordens, and the Bordens spoke only to God. Andrew Jackson Borden was born on September 13, 1822. He was the second cousin to the wealthiest branch of the Borden family, but he did not grow up with money. His branch of the Borden family was relatively poor, so everything Andrew Borden eventually had was earned by hard work. He was, in the modern sense, a self-made man. Andrew began his career making coffins for a funeral home. Then he became an undertaker in his own right, investing the profits from his business in local real estate, banks, and mills. He eventually rose in stature to become the president of the Union Savings Bank, director of the Merchants Manufacturing Company, the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company, the Globe Yarn Mills, the Troy Cotton and Woolen Manufacturing Company, and he was also the owner of several large tracts of valuable farmland which he rented out to tenants. His crowning achievement was a new bank built in downtown Fall River named after him, the A.J. Borden Building. He had truly made his name in the town, despite his humble origins. At the time of his death in 1892, Andrew Borden had amassed a fortune of $300,000, which is equivalent to $9 million in today's money. At the age of 23, Andrew Borden married a 22-year-old woman named Sarah Anthony Morse on December 25th, Christmas Day, 1845. Andrew and Sarah moved into a modest house at 92 2nd Street in Fall River. Their first child, Emma Lenora Borden, was born on March 1st, 
1851. Their second child, Alice Esther Borden, was born on May 3, 1856. Tragically, baby Alice did not live to see her second birthday, dying on March 10, 1858, of hydrocephalus, an accumulation of fluid on the brain which affects one or two in 1,000 newborn babies. Andrew and Sarah had their third and final child, another daughter, on July 19, 1860. They named her Lizzie Andrew Borden. Sarah Morse Borden's health is said to have never fully recovered after she gave birth to her third child. She died of uterine congestion and spinal disease on March 26, 1863. She was 39 years old. At the time of their mother's death, Emma was 12 years old and Lizzie was only two, so young that in later years Lizzie told friends with sadness that she could not remember her mother at all. On her deathbed, Sarah instructed Emma to always take care of her little sister, a promise that Emma Borden tried her best to keep for the rest of her life. Andrew was now a widower with two young daughters to raise on his own. Two years after Sarah Morse Borden's tragic death, on June 6, 1865, Andrew married again. His second wife was Abby Durfee Gray. Like Andrew Borden, Abby belonged to one of the poorer branches of the wealthy Durfee family. Born in 1828, Abby was 37 years old at the time of her marriage to Andrew and considered to be an old maid with no real future. Her marriage to Andrew changed everything. It did not seem to be a hugely romantic relationship. Many in Fall River whispered that Andrew had only married Abby so he would have someone to look after the house and his two children. Emma called Abby by her first name. Lizzie called Abby mother. But it seems likely Emma was really the mother figure in Lizzie's life. When asked about Abby Borden at the murder trial, Emma said, We never felt that she was much interested in us. By middle age, Andrew Borden had become known as a tough but fair businessman, a somewhat forbidding figure, always dressed in a heavy black suit no matter the weather. A sort of New England embodiment of Ebenezer Scrooge, Andrew Borden was a man who would rather sit in a dark room to save the precious kerosene used to light his home. He was a fastidious man, and the only jewelry he wore was a gold pocket watch and a ring that Lizzie had given him. It was her high school class ring, and Lizzie presented it to her father when she graduated. It was so small that it would only fit on his pinky finger, but Andrew wore her ring every day for the rest of his life. Lizzie and Andrew were reportedly very close, but there were many in Fall River who disliked the gaunt Mr. Borden. 
When news of his murder first spread throughout the town on August 4, 1892, a reporter overheard a man in the street say, Well, somebody did a good job. The house the Borden family lived in at 92 Second Street was a simple two-story frame house with an attic and a cellar. Despite their wealth, there was nothing luxurious about the house they lived in. It was near the business district of Fall River, in a neighborhood where many Irish immigrants also lived, far away from the section of town called The Hill, where all the elite families of Fall River had their beautiful mansions. The rooms in the austere Borden house were all connected with one another, which made privacy of any kind nearly impossible. Professor Jules R. Reichbusch said of the living conditions at 92 Second Street, It must have been horribly dismal to live under those circumstances and know that your father was very rich must have been very irksome. The 1890s are remembered as the gaslight era. They didn't have gaslight. They could have had electricity. They didn't have running water. They didn't have hot water. They didn't have toilets. They didn't have a bathtub. And in the 1890s, middle-class people had all those things, and certainly people of Andrew Borden's financial condition could have had all of them, and a lot more. They had hand pumps for water. They had a water closet in the basement, basically an indoor outhouse. In the basement, there was a large bucket where dirty rags or cloths were put, then washed and reused. Slop buckets were kept in all the bedrooms and emptied into the backyard every morning. As Emma and Lizzie grew up in these conditions, it must have been very difficult for them. It was hardly acceptable for a potential wealthy suitor from the hill to come calling at the cramped Borden house on 2nd Street. It is not known if Emma Borden ever courted anyone. Indeed, Emma was so quiet and shy that very little is known about her inner life, and only a few photographs of her are known to exist. But as she aged into spinsterhood, Emma Borden was universally liked and respected around Fall River and was very active in her local church. Lizzie was always the more outgoing of the two sisters. She taught Sunday school to children at her local church and was also a prominent member of the Fall River chapter of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Lizzie did have one or two suitors in her youth, but neither relationship lasted long or led to an engagement. As the years passed, Lizzie seemed destined to become an unmarried spinster like her sister Emma, although she dreamed of a better life away from the cramped house on 2nd Street, longing to live in a large, beautiful house on the hill. For her 30th birthday, in July 1890, Andrew gave Lizzie an extraordinary birthday present, a five-month-long grand tour of Europe, all expenses paid for by her father. 
Lizzie went on this once-in-a-lifetime journey with four other female friends from Fall River High Society. Since all of them were unmarried, they were accompanied by a chaperone. For the first time in her life, Lizzie Borden was steeped in the luxury and culture she longed for so deeply. She traveled through Ireland, Scotland, England, the Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, France, and Italy, taking many photographs along the way, enough to fill two full, beloved scrapbook albums. This tour of Europe was the highlight of Lizzie's life, but then, in November 1860, she had to return to the grim reality of the house at 92 2nd Street. There is evidence to suggest that after her return home, Lizzie was deeply unhappy. Perhaps to appease her younger sister, Emma exchanged bedrooms with Lizzie, giving her the much larger one while Emma took the smaller. But things were not well in the Borden house. In June 1891, there was a robbery in the home, which was committed during the day while Emma, Lizzie, and Bridget were inside the house. Only Abby Borden's room was ransacked, and the only things stolen were several pieces of Abby's jewelry, a stash of money from her desk, and a book of horse car tickets. Andrew Borden discouraged the police from investigating, saying to them, you will never catch the real thief. From that day on, when leaving his bedroom every morning on his way to work, Andrew locked the door to the bedroom he shared with Abby. But then he did something very unusual and telling. He placed the bedroom key on the mantelpiece in the sitting room in plain view of everyone in the house. Many believe this was a silent message to Lizzie, acknowledging that Andrew knew she was responsible for the robbery. This was a family built on silence, where long-standing tensions were never directly spoken of, allowing hatred to fester and grow. It was an open secret in Fall River that Lizzie Borden was a kleptomaniac. She often went into local shops and took things without paying for them. This happened so often that the shop owners would simply watch her, make note of what Lizzie stole, and then send the bill to Andrew, which he always paid without saying a word about it to Lizzie or anyone else. The reason for Lizzie staging a burglary and targeting her stepmother may have arisen out of a growing hatred. Abby Borden had very little existence outside of her house on 2nd Street. She rarely went out in public, and if she did, it was to visit her sister, Sarah Whitehead, to whom she was completely devoted. When Andrew Borden gave some valuable property to Abby's sister, Lizzie and Emma were not pleased, perhaps thinking that their father was giving away valuable property that should have been rightfully theirs. To appease his daughters, Andrew also gave Lizzie and Emma property, which they then sold back to him in exchange for large sums of money. 
This did not heal the rift, however. From that moment on, Lizzie stopped calling Abby mother, even though she was the only mother Lizzie had ever known. She called Abby Mrs. Borden instead, and both Lizzie and Emma stopped eating regular meals with Andrew and Abby, preferring to dine alone in their rooms or waiting until their father and stepmother left. When asked about the family tension during the trial, Emma Borden said, We always spoke. Victoria Lincoln writes of this revealing statement in her book, A Private Disgrace. They spoke. They did not talk. It was an absurd and unhealthy situation, and not one of them knew how to laugh it off how to snap out of it. In July 1892, one month before the murders, Andrew Borden uncharacteristically confided in a business colleague, saying wearily and with some fear, There's a lot of trouble up at the house. There was one other person in the dramatic atmosphere of the Borden household, their maid, Bridget Sullivan. Born in County Cork, Ireland, Bridget Sullivan immigrated to America as a young woman, arriving in New York City on May 24, 1886. She eventually made her way to New England, and she was hired as a maid in the Borden House in November 1889, just when the family dynamic began to fall apart. Bridget's responsibilities included cooking the meals, cleaning, washing, sweeping, and ironing, although Abby Borden did a large amount of the housework herself as well. Both Emma and Lizzie, even five years later, still called Bridget Maggie. Maggie had been the name of the Irish maid employed by the Borden family before Bridget. Abby and Andrew always addressed Bridget by her actual name. At the time of the murders in 1892, Bridget Sullivan was 26 years old. By July of 1892, the atmosphere in the Borden house was beyond toxic. One of the properties Andrew Borden owned was a farm in Swansea, which the family had often stayed at when Emma and Lizzie were children. It held immense sentimental as well as monetary value. Andrew had decided to put the property in Abby's name. Once again, the two sisters felt that their stepmother was being given another piece of the fortune that should be theirs. Around this time, Lizzie went to a dress shop run by a woman named Mrs. Gifford. In the course of a dress fitting, Mrs. Gifford referred to Abby as Lizzie's mother. Lizzie's response was, Don't call her that to me. She is a mean, good-for-nothing old thing. I don't have much to do with her. I stay up in my room most of the time. We don't even eat with them if we can help it. 
two weeks before the murders, Emma Borden, who had almost never spent a night away from home in all her 41 years, decided she had to leave. She planned to go visit a friend in Fairhaven about 15 miles away and stay there for a few weeks. Emma was nervous about leaving Lizzie alone in the house, but she could not stand it anymore. She needed a break from all the never-ending tension. At first, Lizzie decided she would also go away to stay with some friends in the nearby town of Marion. Emma departed for her trip, and Lizzie also left. But she did not go to Marion as she planned. Instead, Lizzie spent two nights in a local boarding house. We do not know why she did this. But after two nights there, she returned home. Two days before the murders, on August 2nd, 1892, the inhabitants of the Borden household became violently sick. Bridget herself believed that the mutton stew the family had been eating for days had spoiled, but Andrew would not allow her to throw it away. That would have been wasteful. So they continued to eat it. Abby and Andrew had been up nearly all night vomiting, and Abby became afraid. She was unsettled enough to leave the house and go see Dr. Seabury Bowen, who lived nearby. Abby told Dr. Bowen that she believed Andrew and herself were being poisoned, that she was afraid Andrew had enemies. Dr. Bowen examined Abby, but concluded it was most likely food poisoning, a likely event during the intense heat wave Fall River was currently experiencing. However, Dr. Bowen offered to go with Abby to the house and examine the others. Andrew was at the front door as they approached and angrily refused to let Dr. Bowen in, saying of Abby's unsolicited doctor's visit, My money shan't pay for it. One day before the murders, on August 3rd, 1892, the Bordens had a house guest. Born on July 5th, 1833, his name was John Vinicum Morse, the younger brother of Andrew Borden's deceased first wife, Sarah. John Morse was probably the closest thing Andrew Borden had to a friend. The two men trusted each other, and John often helped advise Andrew on important business decisions. Lizzie had reason to distrust her Uncle John because she knew he had encouraged her father to sell the property to Abby's sister several years earlier. Now Uncle John was back, no doubt to discuss putting the Swansea farm into Abby's name. There is also evidence to suggest that John Morse was here to discuss something even more important, Andrew Borden finally making a will. Lizzie stayed in her room and did not see Uncle John that day. At 7 p.m., Lizzie left the house to visit her friend Alice Russell and confided in her. Lizzie said, I feel depressed. I feel as if something was hanging over me that I can't shake off. I feel afraid sometimes that Father has an enemy, for we have all been sick and think the milk may have been poisoned. 
I feel as if I wanted to sleep with my eyes half open, with one eye open, all the time. I am afraid someone will do something. I don't know but what. Someone will do something. At 9 p.m., Lizzie returned home and went up to her room. In the sitting room below her bedroom, John and Andrew talked business late into the night. Lizzie very likely could hear every word they said. On the day of the murders, August 4, 1892, John Morse left the house after breakfast to run some errands, and Andrew asked him to return home to the house for lunch. Lizzie stayed upstairs and did not see him. The following is directly from the testimony of Bridget Sullivan. After Mr. and Mrs. Borden ate their breakfast, I ate mine and cleared things up. Five minutes later, Miss Lizzie came through to the kitchen. I was washing the dishes, and I asked her what did she want for breakfast. She said she didn't know as she wanted any breakfast, but she guessed she would have something. She said she would have some coffee and cookies. I went out in the backyard. I had a sick headache, and I was sick to my stomach. I went out to vomit, and I stayed ten or fifteen minutes. When I came back, I finished my dishes and took them in the dining room. Mrs. Borden was there. She said she wanted the windows washed, inside and outside both. She said they were awful dirty. After that, I didn't see Mrs. Borden anymore until I found her dead upstairs. I can't say exactly, but I think this was about nine o'clock. Then I shut the windows I was going to wash and went down cellar and got a pail to take some water and took it outdoors. As I was outside, Lizzie Borden appeared in the back entry and says, Maggie, are you going to wash the windows? I says, yes. First, I washed the sitting room windows on the south side of the house, at the Kelly side, before I started washing, Mrs. Kelly's girl appeared, and I was talking to her at the fence. Then I washed the two front windows. Between times, I went to the barn and got some water. I washed the dining room windows and one parlor window on the side. During all that time, I did not see anybody come to the house. Then I went into the sitting room to wash those windows inside. I began to wash the window next to the front door. Then I heard like a person at the door was trying to unlock the door but could not, so I went to the front door and unlocked it. The spring lock was locked. I unbolted the door and it was locked with a key. There were three locks. I said, Pshaw, and Miss Lizzie laughed upstairs. Her father was out there on the doorstep. She was upstairs. She must have been either in the entry or at the top of the stairs, I can't tell which. Mr. Borden and I didn't say a word as he came in. I went back to my window washing. He came into the sitting room and went into the dining room. He had a little parcel in his hand, same as a paper or a book. Miss Lizzie came downstairs. I heard her ask her father if he had had any mail, and they had some talk 
between them, which I did not understand, but I heard her tell her father that Mrs. Borden had a note and gone out. I began to wash the dining room windows. Then Miss Lizzie brought an ironing board from the kitchen, put it in the on the dining room table, and commenced to iron. She said, Maggie, are you going out this afternoon? I said, I don't know. I might and I might not. I don't feel very well. She says, If you go out, be sure and lock the door, for Mrs. Borden has gone out on a sick call, and I might go out too. Says I, Miss Lizzie, who is sick? I don't know. She had a note this morning. It must be in town. I finished my two windows. She went on ironing. Then I went into the kitchen. Miss Lizzie came out there and said, There is a cheap sale of dress goods at Sargent's this afternoon at eight cents a yard. And I said, I am going to have one. Then I went upstairs to my room. I don't remember to have heard a sound of anyone about the house. Then I laid down on the bed. I heard the city hall bell ring, and I looked at my clock, and it was eleven o'clock. I don't think I went to sleep at all. I heard no sound. I didn't hear the opening or closing of the screen door. I can hear that from my room if anyone is careless and slams the door. The next thing was that Miss Lizzie hollered, Maggie, come down. I said, what is the matter? She says, come down quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. This might be ten or fifteen minutes after the clock struck eleven. I run downstairs. Bridget Sullivan runs out of the house to find Dr. Bowen. Adelaide Churchill, the Borden's next-door neighbor, saw Bridget running and became worried someone was gravely ill. Mrs. Churchill saw Lizzie standing behind the screen door of her house, and she asked if something was wrong. Lizzie Borden said to Adelaide Churchill, Oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. Next time we meet, I will continue with the tale of the Borden tragedy, part two. If you enjoy the podcast, I encourage you to leave a rating and a review if the spirit moves you. You can also like Going Dark Theater on Facebook. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to episode transcripts and other spooky projects I'm writing, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month. I am your host, Josh Hitchens, and you've been listening to Going Dark Theater. Until our next midnight together, I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And now... Going dark.